whatever. Happy Easter, everybody. <laughs> Technical difficulties aside, we're making this happen. All right. So good. All right. Thank you for your patience, everybody. I really appreciate it. Sorry for the technical difficulty there. All right, so um, we're live and we're here. Melissa's with me. <laughs> so if you have <laughs> questions for her, you can ask her too. She's gonna do some moderation function for me here and uh, list out your questions for me so we can uh, bit through them as, as rapidly as we can because that's always, that's always good. I like to get a lot of questions answered in these things. That is the overall purpose of it. Uh, things have been really exciting um, here in the Shelton household. Uh, lots of ups and downs and good and bad and this and that and the other thing, but life, it's just life. Life continues. Um, really, really excited for the, um, <laughs> well, excited, maybe that's not the right word, for the Mueller report <laughs> that came out. Did a whole podcast on that yesterday. Um, if you guys haven't checked it out and you're at all interested in what I have to say about any of that, then you can check that podcast out. I had a lot of fun um, doing that. Oh, is that a super chat? Oh, thank you. Hey, thanks, Cynthia. Really appreciate that. All right, so let's see what kind of uh, see what kind of comments we're getting here. Hey, everybody, Denmark. Wow, so awesome. Sweden, that is so cool. Oh, Blake, yes, cool. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. And I. Um, I know I was a little harsh in my comment to you, Blake, uh, so I'm going to just stay right now publicly. I was a little harsh, okay? I, I acknowledge that on my part. Uh, I just don't like seeing people bickering with the ad hominem and the other nonsense that goes on on my channel. And anyway, whatever. Uh, okay, wow, Clearwater, Florida. Cool. Good. Yeah, thanks for that comment, Blake. I appreciate it. Okay, so... Um, so we're here, we're live. I am here to answer questions. Now we started with a really great one from the last stream that we did note down from uh, Kristen G. She asked me, and we're just gonna dive right into this, okay? Uh, once you complete your TRs, do you ever have to do them again? If in many years, uh, would someone need to brush up on their indoctrination? This is a great question because um, uh, yes, TRs are not something that are just, just done once or twice in Scientology. There are lots of courses that have TRs or first off, let me, for anybody who doesn't know what I'm talking about, TRs are training routines. In Scientology, there are uh, a lot of different TRs, but the basic TRs are TRs zero to four and then six through nine. There is no TR five. And, um, the training routines were designed to improve communication skills and control skills, ability to control another uh, objects and people. Uh, those are the upper TRs, the six through nine, but the zero through four are communication skills. And these are done over and over and over again. Auditors who are professional auditors or, or who are uh, practicing to be auditors do lots and lots of TRs. Hubbard actually said that they should be done every single day when you're on an internship. You, so often when people come in as, as auditor trainees or like I said, the professional auditors, they'll just come in and start their day by doing 10, 20, 30 minutes of TRs. Uh, not every single auditor every single day, but as a kind of a routine action, you're supposed to keep brushed up on them and keep sharp and and uh, and practice them all the time. So their indoctrination is constantly being kept up. 
on that particular thing. So, and that's especially true, like I said, for the auditors. Normal uh, public Scientologists or staff members or Sea Org members who are just going about their regular post activities or their jobs or, or just coming in and doing classes would not be doing TRs all the time. That's, it's just really for the auditors, um, unless you're doing a TRs course or you're doing some corrective action that calls for you to do TRs, then you'll be uh, doing them again. So it's, it's very, very common for Scientologists to be doing TRs, you know, pretty regularly. Okay, cool. What else we got here? Oh, good. Some more. How much, uh, oh, this is an interesting question, Splinger. How much of an offense is it for a Scientologist to work for a psychiatrist? Um, that would be a suppressive act, <laughs> is what that would be. Uh, no Scientologist would ever work for a psych um, at all, or anything even related to psychiatry or psychology. I mean, these Scientology considers psychiatry to be a, a mortal enemy of what Scientology is all about and what it's trying to do. And Hubbard was just, I mean, he just lambasted psychiatry every time, every chance he got. So um, so there's zero chance that any Scientologist is ever gonna have a long-term relationship, uh, even much of a friendship with a psychologist or a psychiatrist, much less work for them. That would just be verboten. Um, no one in Scientology would be okay with that. All right, let's see what else we got here. Uh, what is a play lecture? Um, Jane Smith asks, what is a play lecture? I'm not sure. Um, can you clarify that question? All right. Um, Mercini Papadaki. Hey, do you enjoy holidays now that you're out of the Church of Scientology or are you a critical thinker about it? No, I love holidays. <laughs> holidays are awesome. Uh, we celebrate Christmas. We celebrate. I mean, Easter is kind of like, OK, whatever. It's Easter. You know, I'm not religious. So for me, this is really just another Sunday and, and we're going to go to a party this afternoon and, and hang out with friends and stuff. So it's that's that's what holidays are, are really, you know, kind of embody for me. But uh, love Halloween. Uh, Halloween's a good one. Love Fourth of July, going out, watching the fireworks. Um, what other holidays? Thanksgiving, of course. That's always just Thanksgiving. Uh, you know, in America, that's a big deal. Mm -hmm. uh, let's see. Um, yeah, those are, I mean, you know, President's Day is all that kind of crap. I don't really care about that yeah, too much. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, both like, <laughs> mainly, I, I, is it because I'm jealous? Because <laughs> I want my birthday celebrated as a national holiday too? <laughs> um, yeah, so I actually did one or two videos about holidays in Scientology too. I think I did a Christmas one. Uh, this last December, and I did one, I think, two years ago about uh, Scientology holidays. So that was kind of fun. Um, holidays were really stressful uh, when I was a church staff member because we were always, uh, holidays were always the big opportunity to get people in for more time, sit them down, try to, you know, get them to give us more money, that kind of stuff. So holidays were always about extra time. And I actually went into a lot of detail about how torturous that was for me over the Christmas time, especially uh, in that video I made in December. So, um, so look that up, check that out. All right, let's see what else we got here. These are good questions. You guys are, are really on it this, this week. Um, play lecture on time must be mistaken. Party play like yeah, I'm not sure, Jane, what you're referring to on that one. I'm, I, it's not clicking, uh, ringing a bell for me. I'm sorry. 
Um, Gern Blonston, are there any staff at all at the empty orgs? Yes, yes, there are. Um, Hubbard said per policy that the minimum number of staff for an org is three. The ideal orgs have way more than three staff members. I mean, generally speaking, they're they 20, 30, 40 staff, something like that. You know, they do a big, what happens is they renovate the building. Uh, while they're renovating it, you know, the first the first effort is make all the money, buy the building, then make a bunch of money, renovate the building, and then open it. Well, while the renovations start happening is when they really start gearing up to get a lot of staff. And the Sea Org will actually send a whole project or a, what's called a mission to the ideal org location, and they will start recruiting staff to work for the ideal org. These, the complement is supposed to be somewhere between 100 and 125 staff members per org. Um, and the orgs are uh, divided into a day org and a foundation org. Day hours are nine to five or nine to six, and the foundation hours are six to 10, Monday through Friday and all day, Saturday and Sunday. So there's two crews, two different shifts. Uh, a lot of staff will do both shifts, but you're, but you know, like, like a single shift sort of thing. But it's supposed to be two different organizations. Um, when the Sea Org comes in, they often find that there are not enough Scientologists in the area to staff up the organ the ideal org. So they end up importing people from other places. In fact, I believe today on Tony Ortega's blog. There, uh, Rod Keller did a whole article about that, about how people get moved around and stuff, which is what I used to work on. I used to move people around from state to state, place to place. Uh, literally, I would go and and move their house. I would I'd put all their furniture in a truck and I'd do it myself while we sent the person off to go start be a staff member at, uh, at NORC. So, um, so that's kind of how they get the staff, but they lose them just as quickly as they get them because the logistics fall through, the staff aren't making money, they can't afford to stay there, you know, therefore, uh, problem, 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 problem. So they tended to, to, to lose all those staff that the Sea Org pumped into the place pretty quickly. In Twin Cities, we lost guys hand over fist within the first few months. And then it comes back down to the crew that was kind of there before the whole place went ideal, it's like there's this core group of people who are kind of keeping the doors open all these years, and those people end up sticking around, and maybe a few of the guys that the Sea Org brought in also stick around, but for the most part, it's it's kind of a whoop, boom, you know, sort of a thing, and that happened over and over and over again in every single one of the ideal orgs I ever had anything to do with. So, hope that is a is a good thorough answer to that question. Oh my God, yeah, look at all this. All right. Um, <laughs> do, do I celebrate Canada Day, Day, Canada Day too, or are you too racist too? Uh, racist against Canadians. <laughs> Canadians are a race. Okay, that's awesome. Uh, sure, eh? <laughs> yeah, I'm totally racist against Canadians. I can't stand the Canucks. Uh, Steven Santa Jelly. Do, do Scientology have their own holidays on LRH birthday? Yes, absolutely. There are a number of specific Scientology holidays. L. Ron Hubbard's birthday on March 13th is a gigantic one. Um, probably the biggest one as far as a, a Scientology celebratory day. March 13th is a big deal in Scientology. Uh, May 9th is also a uh, sort of a holiday-ish kind of day. That's the, the uh, anniversary of the publication of Dianetics, the Modern Science of Mental Health. 
And then there is the, in June, they have a series of events that they hold on the free winds to celebrate the maiden voyage launch of the free winds sailing. There is also uh, the IAS anniversary in September, I believe. Um, there is the celebration of a celebrity center uh, in, I think that's in October or also in September when they do the gala. And of course they do, you know, Christmas and New Year's. So those are those I, I, I remember, right, those are all the, the Scientology holidays. They've got some other ones for like org day and stuff, but nobody really pays attention to the, too much of that. Uh, let's see. Zenu Kronstam Beskow. Wow, that's an awesome name. Given that Scientology put a lot of emphasis on understanding what each word means, do they ever talk about how words change meaning over time? Um, yes, yes, they do. In fact, that's part of uh, clearing a word. Uh, when you when you look up a word in Scientology, you don't just go context specific on the on the exact definition that's in use in the context of what you're reading. You, that you clear that definition up, but then you also clear up every other definition of the word, and you also get into the etymology. And the synonyms, and like uh, you really get a very thorough understanding of the word, and it's diving into the etymologies is sometimes absolutely fascinating. Now I know your question's a little bit different from that, so um, you know, do Scientologists chat about how words change over time, and language is a living thing that's constantly evolving? Kind of, you know, they that you know those who really get into the language aspects of it, or really get into you know, really liking how words work and how etymology works, they'll they'll recognize that as a as a as a thing, but um, but that doesn't change how you clear a word. You still got to go through all the definitions and, and all of that. Uh, let's see here. It's good. We're getting through a lot of stuff here. <sighs> yeah, somebody said if Chris was in Canada on Canada Day, I'm sure he would join in the fun. Yeah, uh, yes, I would. <laughs> I don't have anything against Canadians. I was. I like Canada. Uh, then he also, uh, Kronstrom Beskow also asked, any idea about souls slash thetans getting outdated information from previous lives or useful skills and knowledge from previous lives for that matter? Yes, they're what Hubbard talked about in a few lectures early on, how you could still have your skill set from past lives come into now. Um, he talked about child prodigies being that like uh, that was a manifestation of a past life talent that the person kept or held on to or somehow ran into and 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 turned it back on. Uh, so so that was kind of the explanation for why are there child prodigies or or um, even now I'm not really that wouldn't really apply the same way with like idiot savants or autism or anything like that. But um, but yeah, that kind of skill set. And Hubbard was sort of implying in some of the lectures that this was something that people could experience. They could get languages back. They could get, you know, piano skills back, I think, are two things he specifically mentioned. Um, and that kind of came and went because I never, ever, ever met a Scientologist in all the years that I was in who actually claimed that they had a skill set brought back in, in present time from a past life. I never, never ran into that. Uh, but I certainly ran into a whole lot of people and definitely had conversations hoping that that would happen between me and other Scientologists. We used to talk about that. So 
Um, so it is a phenomenon that is hoped for in Scientology, but I don't think it's realized um, ever. <laughs> okay. All right. What else we got here? These are great questions. Um, Cat's awesome. Uh, do you assist Chris? Oh, Lisa. Oh, Melissa, that's for you. Oh. <laughs> do you assist Chris assist in his him? research? Uh, not most of the time. I mean, every once in a while, but most of the time he just kind of does it on his own. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, I, however, um, I don't think she actually realizes <laughs> how she helps me. Um, <laughs> Melissa herself has her life experiences and her um, education about diabetes, about anxiety, about depression, about uh, mental health in general has been a gigantic eye-opener for me uh, coming out of Scientology, where I used to think that all of that was complete crap, none of it was real, or if it was real, it was just a mental manifestation or psychosomatic in, in nature. I never gave any credence as a Scientologist to depression, anxiety, um, you know, any of that kind of stuff I always thought was just bunk. And, uh, you know, there's this whole thing about a chemical imbalance in your brain. I mean, we just we used to joke about that. We used to think it was it was uh, funny that it was so stupid as, as Scientologists. So I had a lot to unlearn a lot. And uh, and Melissa has done more than anybody else in showing me things and talking to me about this and making it really real that these things are very, very real and that they do have chemical neurological causes. Uh, that's, you know, you guys know I've been studying a lot of that stuff. And, um, and so I'll say that, you know, in terms of helping me with my research, I would not even be anywhere near the level of understanding that I am about all of that stuff if it weren't for Melissa. All right, let's see what else we got here. Uh, Jill Anderson, why doesn't anyone tell staffers minimum wage is $15 an hour? They do. The, the staff of Scientology organizations are well aware of the fact that they are not paid professional uh, employees of the Church of Scientology. They, when you sign up for a staff contract, you are acknowledging in writing that you are a religious volunteer. Period. The church doesn't owe you anything except free courses and free auditing services. That is in the contract. Money, yeah, whatever. When, you know, the, legally uh, speaking, you understand when you go into a staff situation that, um, that you're not necessarily going to be getting paid anything. Um, that's, if, that's if you read the fine print in the contract, of course, right? But that is what it says. And people generally, Scientologists generally do understand that. They know that they're not going into a situation where they're going to be getting benefits and it's going to be like a real living kind of job. So, um, so the answer to the question is, yes, they do, they do actually know that. Uh, okay, let's see here. Uh, da, 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 da. Cheyenne, 29, I have seen Aftermath Foundation cards. Where's the best place to put them? Oh, good question. Anywhere and everywhere around Scientology churches, stores, um, in the place, if you can get in there and do it, that would be amazeballs if we could get aftermath cards in the churches. Because the staff, of course, avoid this stuff, you know, cognitive dissonance and all that. But, um, but that would be the best place to put them. 
local areas around the churches of Scientology or in the churches themselves. Uh, now, obviously, when I say something like that, I'm not encouraging anybody to go trespass or do anything illegal or anything like that. OK, guys, so, you know, let's let's <laughs> let's not go crazy here. Uh, you know, we don't want to go, uh, you know, infringing on Scientologists rights or anything like that. And they do have some. So <laughs> it's just like everybody else does. Um, but that would be the best place to put them because that's where uh, at least there will be some awareness raised about it, especially around Sea Org bases, because the Sea Org are the most ensconced and so many of them don't even don't have a clue that the Aftermath Foundation even exists. So um, so that would be the, the goal of, do, of such an activity is really just just let them know that that there is a thing called the Aftermath Foundation and that, that they could get potentially get help from it. Uh, Tango Z, uh, or Z eyes. I, it's always a little hard to tell. Uh, it, oh, there we go. Tango Z. There we go. Is OT8 done on the free winds to be away from concentration of body thetans? Um, hmm. That's an interesting question. It's done on the free winds. Hubbard said that it needs to be done. OT8 needs to be done off the crossroads of the world. That's the, that was the expression he, I recall him using. Um, would that translate to getting away from a bunch of body thetans? I mean, yeah, it would. I mean, it's also getting away from smog. It's getting away from traffic. It's getting away from congestion. It's getting away from noise and distraction. The whole point of going to the free winds, at least the marketing for why you should be going to the free winds, was that it was away from all the interbulation and upset and distraction of the world. And you could really just focus on what you're doing and, and get all your attention on this new, this, this first actual OT level, you know, cause that's what OT8 is, is, is supposed to be, is it's supposed to be the first actual OT level. OTs one through seven are pre OT levels uh, is what they, is what they sort of call them in the church. All right. We're getting through some getting through some good questions here. How's this going for you guys? You guys enjoying this so far? <laughs> uh, let's see here. Um, do, oh, okay. Vodkanet B67 asks, do you have an interest in history? I found that studying it really gives one a better grasp of how human beings think and act. It would help more people, I think, understand why cults exist. Absolutely. I love history. Excuse me. Always have. Um, always been a little bit of history buff. Always love learning more about it because my concepts of, of time and how things have happened and how civilizations have interacted and what happened when and where and how are always being updated. I'm always learning new stuff about that. And uh, there's, it's so amazing. History is the most wonderful thing. I really wish that we didn't have a need to dramatize history on in TV shows and movies in a in a false way to make it more dramatic and this kind of stuff because there's so much actual amazing drama and you know the human relationships and the and the epic stories that are available that are all that are completely true and that are completely fact based are amaze balls right they're amazing. Um, so wouldn't that be something to see some of that, but instead we, you know, it's always disappoints me a little bit when we get the Disney versions of things or the, the history, oh my God, the history channel version of things, Jesus, you want to talk about 
corrupted uh, history. Anyway, so yes, I do. I do love history, and yes, I completely agree that it. Um, I think, in fact, history is probably the first thing I ever studied that started giving me the incl- the inkling of how sociology works and how groups of people work. And uh, and always, I've always enjoyed that. All right. Uh, Gern Blanston again. Do Sea Org members have a safe place to keep any money they might have? Um, well, Sea Org members do have bank accounts. Uh, they can have those and they can put money in them. Um, I had a Wells Fargo company. There was a bank right around the corner from Pack Base and I, I set that up. Um, let's see. You know, you, you, if, you're, if you're trying to store money in your room, no. It's not safe. Security can come in anytime. Other people can come in anytime. I mean, the dorms and the, even the, the the couples' rooms, unless you put your own lock on the door, which is not going to ever happen in a dorm room, but in a couples' room, I had seen um, locks put on the doors sometimes, but security always had to have a copy of the key or they'll just break the lock open. If they want, If security wants to get into your room for some reason, they're going to get in there. And if you put a safe in your room, uh, and you put money in there, they're going to demand that you open it because they're going to want to know what you're keeping in there. You don't. Uh, the, the thing about being in the Sea Org is you don't get to have secrets anymore in any part of your life. So that's pretty much the, the answer to that. If you could keep it a secret by stashing money in a bank account, then sure, you could pull that off. Um, but you're going to be constantly under pressure as a Sea Org member to be revealing your secrets. And if you feel that you're withholding something from the group that you shouldn't be for some reason, then it, you're going to have the internal pressure to, oh, I really need to say something about this. And no, oh, I really shouldn't be withholding it. And, you know, that's kind of how that sort of pressure works. Uh, let's see. Uh, K Dog. Uh, DK, can you tell a little about the center in Copenhagen, Denmark? It seems to be a lot of people from around. Um, I actually have never been to Denmark or Copenhagen. I can't really talk a whole lot about it other than the fact that it's a, you know, renovated Sea Org base. And um, and I've seen pictures of it. That's really my only experience with it. So I, I really shouldn't comment on it more than that because I've never been there. <laughs> uh, let's see. Tasha Helms, is suicide a sin? I don't think so. Um, I think that a person has a right to their life and a right to terminate their life. Um, That being said, I would work night and day to encourage a person to stay alive. Um, I would not, you know, I mean, but but it would be very, very context specific. If a person had a terminal illness and was in constant pain and they wanted to end their life, it's not for me to tell them that they need to stay alive. That's kind of, you know, at a final, there's a final point where it is the person's decision. But I would be uh, in almost, you know, in 99.9% of cases I've ever run into or will run into, I'm sure, um, I would encourage a person to continue to live because the problems that we face, can, however insurmountable, however unsolvable, however crazy they might look to us in one moment, that can always change. Our views about things, our emotional attitude about a thing can always change. And in fact, the one thing you can count on is that your view will change because that's how we are. We're never fixed on one thing forever. So, um, so that's my, that's my kind of view about that. 
good question. It's a it's a tough one. Uh, Kristen, do wogs have past lives or only when they become Scientologists? No, everybody has past lives. Uh, past lives are a thing that are supposed to be a reality in Scientology for everybody. It's just a matter of you don't remember them. You have amnesia. You can't uh, you can't remember them, right? And Scientology processing is supposed to open the door to those um, repressed, suppressed, you know, unviewable memories. But uh, but yeah, everybody's everybody's got them. Uh, Cynthia, are you both a mimosa or Bloody Mary person for brunch? <laughs> this is Melissa's question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Chris isn't really into either, but I'd say mimosas. <laughs> yeah. Definitely not a big Bloody Mary fan, but I would definitely drink a bunch of mimosas. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. And uh, I would do mimosa before I would do Bloody Mary's also. <laughs> I'm not really big on wine or, or what's mimosas, wine or champagne, champagne or champagne and orange juice. Yeah. Yeah. I would do... Um, I would do screwdrivers. Ooh. Yeah, I'd do those. I, I, I've i gotten pretty messed up on screwdrivers. <laughs> uh, Joe, Joe Luker, uh, what would do... Oh, Lucero. Sorry. Sorry, Joe. Joe Lucero. What would do after the Church of Scientology closes its doors? What would do? What would I do? What would they do? I, could you clarify that question? Sorry, Joe. I just want to make sure I'm getting the subject right there on that so I can give you a good answer. Uh, a gray. What, so what do you think would have happened if David Miscavige didn't take over when he did, and it would have been there, been the other guy? I don't remember his name. Would Scientology be less destructive? Oh, I think you're thinking about Pat Broker. Um, yes, I think Scientology would be less destructive. I think it would just be, I think it would be just as delusional, uh, and I think it would be just as false, but Miscavige has taken certain of Hubbard's policies and he's really amped them up. And I'm talking about the um, the OSA work, the the disconnection, the the uh, incredible amount of stress that's put on sex and control of Scientologists through sex and, and shaming uh, on that topic. Uh, you know, masturbation, totally verboten in Scientology, absolutely not okay, especially in the Sea Org. Uh, big, big, big no-no. Uh, so when they're controlling your sexual life and sexual activity to that degree, then you know you're going to have uh, you're going to have problems. And Hubbard didn't didn't do it to that degree. You know that was a miscavige thing. Um, so so that's kind of how I see it. Um, but it was always bad. It's not like it would have been a, a nice fluffy, you know, furry nice thing to have around. Now if it wasn't just for that evil miscavige. It was it was always rotten to the core. It's just that it would it would have been a kinder, gentler Scientology if Miscavige hadn't taken over, because the people who were in charge that he ended up ousting and getting rid of, um, they were well-intentioned people who who didn't beat up on each other and didn't want to see that kind of thing going on. So you know, Hubbard goes into senility and he starts you know giving weird orders like spit in this guy's face and stuff. Well. One person who was around then, Janice uh, Grady, and did, interpreted that order as, well, of course, that doesn't mean you're actually going to literally go spit in the guy's face. You're going to rip his face. You're going to you're going to yell at him. You're going to give him a hard time because he messed up. But Miscavige interpreted that as, you know, no, you really need to go spit in the guy's face, right? Like that. That's the difference, right? Is is there was a little bit of common sense, a little bit of thinking, a little bit of let's dial it down a little bit by some of the other people who were in charge when Miscavige was up and coming. But when he took over, 
he got rid of all of those people and ruthlessness was definitely the order of the day. So he did mean what would you do? Okay, good. What would I do if Scientology, what would you do after the Church of Scientology closes its doors? I would do exactly what I'm doing right now. I would continue to talk about uh, destructive cults because guess what? There's about 5,000 of them out there. And I would continue talking about uh, psychology and neurology and sociology and all the stuff that I'm talking about and the different ways that um, these things pop up in life uh, for all of us in all different aspects of our life, not just uh, religion. Uh, I think that's what I would do. And also, of course, um, let's not skip over this. Uh, if all the, if the Church of Scientology closed its doors, I'd probably celebrate for a few weeks. <laughs> you know, there would be a celebratory period of of, uh, of epic proportions, because that would be quite the uh, that would be that would be really amazing if that actually happened. I've kind of given up on that idea, um, but boy, wouldn't that be amazing if they actually did? Okay, let's see what else we got here. Uh, Kidali is the anti psychology movement covert Scientology. Asking because of Scientology's denial of psychiatric science ideas that you just mentioned. Yes. Okay. No, the anti-psychiatry or anti-psychology movement exists independent of and separate from Scientology. There have always been and there always should have been people who were activists for human rights in the field of psychology and psychiatry. Psychiatry has been a field that has had a very, very terrifying, rocky, horrible past. Um, human rights violations, the order of the day, um, really not treating people well. I'm talking about in Bedlam. I'm talking about early, you know, 1800s, early 1900s, all the way through um, lobotomies, transorbital leucotomies. I mean, this, you know, ice pick surgeries. This was really barbaric stuff. And there were, and there were very righteous people who were very, very upset about that as well. They should have been. So that's that movement has always existed. Psychiatry has responded by. Um, you know, moving into drug therapy, moving into talk therapy a lot more than they are into the ice pick crap now. Um, you know, I've, so I think that I support those movements uh, trying to reform psychiatry and make it a kinder, gentler, more science-driven uh, activity rather than making it this, you know, whatever the hell it was before. Um, Scientology through CCHR the Citizens Commission on Human Rights, which is one of their front groups, tries to edge in on that crowd and work with them and ally themselves with them. And humorously, Scientology is so toxic that most of those anti-psychiatry groups don't want to have anything to do with Scientology and they don't want their help, which is pretty interesting because Scientology has a lot of money to throw at that. They're really eager to get rid of psychiatry. They really, truly are. And David Miscavige is totally down with throwing money in that direction. But even the anti-psychiatry guys look at the psychiatry, the anti-psychiatry material that Scientology puts out and they go, dude, this is a little extreme, man. It's, it's not, it's bad, but I mean, come on, this, you're talking about stuff that's 20, 30, 40 years old. Like that's not how it is now, you know? So they don't really, you know, it's from, I've seen some allyship there, but I've also seen conflict and, and people pushing back against Scientology, even though they have common ground on not liking psychiatry. All right, uh, Phoenix Rising. How does Scientology think that they are clearing the planet when they attack anyone that rejects their way of thinking? 
how do you clear the planet when you are ignoring a majority of the people? And that's the thing. See, Scientologists don't think that the majority of people are anti-Scientology. They think it's people like me, little tiny group of people who are riling everybody else up against them. And we're the true evil people, the suppressive people. We're the bad guys. And there's only a very, very tiny percentage of us. The percentage Hubbard gives is two and a half percent of the population uh, are, 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 the, are the real bad guys. And they're messing it up for everybody else because, you know, a, a small number of people can, uh, can rile up or what he calls interbulate other people around them and get them all, all bleh, and that's why they think, that's why Scientologists think that people have such a hard time with Scientology is because they're just being riled up by all the lies that we're telling, see? Uh, and that's, and, they, and they, they maintain a view that the majority of people in the world want Scientology. They just don't know about it yet. And if they were properly informed about what Scientology really is, then they would be on board just like that, see? And everybody's a Scientologist, they just don't know it yet. See, that's the attitude that they tend to have. So the name calling and the directed attacks against individuals are against who the people that Scientology considers are suppressive people, not the world in general. Scientologists think that everybody generally is wanting to get along and are all basically good people. Uh, just us bad apples who are, who are spoiling it for everybody. All right. Um, JS, hello from Brighton. Hey, Brighton. Uh, as a prominent critic, if you ever visited St. Hill here in the UK, do you think you would be recognized? Uh, you know, I do. <laughs> I think if I showed up at St. Hill, I'd be shown the door fairly quickly uh, because I am prominent. Um, uh, you know, I get very little attention from Scientology in terms of any fair gaming or attacks to me personally, and, I, and I'm okay with that. I, it's not what I'm doing this for. But, um, but yes, I think if I tried to go down to the local church here in Denver, or if I went over to the UK and, and tried to go to St. Hill, I think Sea Org Security would have my face uh, up on the board real fast, and I, I think I'd be shown the door pretty quickly. Uh, let's see, Cheyenne291, oh, this is for you, Melissa. She is asking if I was ever in Scientology, and no, I was not. Um, my family's not very religious at all, so I'm never really involved in any of that. <laughs> nope, nope. Oh, yeah, that is the other thing Melissa's been real good for me uh, for in terms of uh, on that earlier research question. Um, atheism, right? I mean, I... I kind of, you know, went pretty secular after I left Scientology, and now I'm kind of more, you know, I, in the I don't know realm. But, um, but Melissa's experiences with uh, with atheism and belief, uh, we've had long talks about it, and it's always been uh, fascinating to me, and uh, and quite an education. Teresa Akins, because you were so sheltered in Scientology, no TV, little contact with the outside world, etc. How did you learn so much about pop culture, TV programs, and your vast knowledge that you show uh, on them? Okay. Um, as a public Scientologist and staff member, I had free access to TV and movies and stuff. A friend of mine and I would always go out on Friday nights and watch, uh, or Thursday nights, and, and watch the premieres of, of, of movies at midnight. And this is back in my Santa Barbara days. 
uh, Batman, you know, stuff like that. I used to use Terminator, Terminator 2, you know. Um, so I was always a, a big movie guy and big fantasy guy. I, I, you know, it started when I was a kid. I was playing, um, I learned how to play Dungeons and Dragons. And I got totally into fantasy and sci-fi and a lot of fantasy, really. I was really into that kind of stuff, reading Tolkien and all that, Ursula K. Le Guin and uh, ton, you know, Ray Bradbury, all that, all that stuff. So that's where it got me started. And once I got started, I started writing myself. I was writing stories and stuff in school and uh, loved that stuff. And so it was a real natural fit for me to go into the whole nerd geek you know, movie, TV, pop culture stuff, and always be super interested in that. Almost all of that died when I joined the Sea Org. I was 25 years old because so then I was cut off. Then I didn't have access to almost everything. And then I didn't really keep up with pop culture, TV shows. I mean, there are still to this day references Melissa will make that I don't know. <laughs> because <laughs> of stuff, you know, I never watched a single episode of Friends. I mean, I, not once. I still haven't. Uh, there are whole shows, whole whole music bands I've never heard of, right? Um, so coming then when I um, came out of the Sea Org and came out of Scientology, I did a lot of catching up. Like I downloaded all of the seasons of South Park. I didn't just watch, you know, the Tom Cruise in the Closet episode. I watched seasons of South Park. That was a lot of great catch up on stuff. Um, I hadn't, you know, I, I'd seen uh, The Dark Knight as a Sea Org member on a day off, but I had never seen Batman Begins, right? The first one. So I had to go back and watch that and watch all this stuff that I had to catch up on, right? Tons of movies and stuff. Um, so that was kind of what happened. And um, and I just caught up uh, in the last six years. So that's that's why I am pop culture literate, I guess, so somewhat to some degree. You know, I don't think I'm very literate about what's going on now, though. I mean, I'm, I've got some awareness of comic books and comic book TV shows and stuff, but I, I don't really watch those anymore. Uh, I just keep up on the Marvel universe because I love the Marvel movies. All right. Uh, Neon Cat. I heard Jennifer Lopez's father is a Scientologist. How would the church handle him due to the fact that J-Lo is a close friend with Leah? Will they force him to disconnect with J-Lo? Okay. You guys are going to love this one. I actually serviced J-Lo's father as a Scientologist. I was a Sea Org member, and he would come in uh, to the, the advanced organization in Los Angeles and get some auditing. Super nice guy. I mean, he's small. He's a, he's a short little guy, and he's really super nice. I don't have one bad thing to say about this guy. He is just really nice guy. Um, so it would really surprise me if they were putting pressure on him to disconnect from his daughter because of the connection with Leah. Um, you know, that's a celebrity connection, and celebrities are the ones who get to break the rules on disconnection. Um, if there's anybody in Scientology who gets to break the rules on it, it's celebrities. And, um, and JLo's dad would, I, I'm pretty sure, now I, I, you know, it's not like I was friends with the guy. I just serviced him, right? Um, so I can't speak for sure to his character, but I, I would really be surprised if he disconnected from his own daughter over Scientology. He was not around that often. And when he came around, we were just giving him little repair sessions or little, you know, feel good kind of sessions. We were there was not he was not like shooting up the bridge to get to OT8 as quickly as he could. He wasn't he wasn't that kind of Scientologist. 
So that was my experience with him. So that's really all I can say about it. That was many, many, many years ago. That was 2003-ish time period, 2004. So obviously a lot's happened since then. So I, that's all I can really say about it. Uh, let's see here. Robert Roberts in Canada, a basic bank account costs 10 to $13 a month. How did you pay bank fees out of $60 a month from Sea Org? Um, I had a free checking account at Wells Fargo. I didn't have bank fees. Um, and when we did, it was painful. Um, but my wife and I at the time had a, had an, had a, did we have a joint account? Yeah, we did. Um, I don't think she liked having a joint account, but I thought it was a good idea anyway. Uh, so yeah, we didn't, um, we didn't really have bank fees at that time because I wouldn't have been able to afford them. <laughs> that's, that's the long and short of it. Uh, and there's different things you could do to like, I also had a U.S. bank account and at the U.S. bank, I had to open a savings account and transfer a certain amount into it every month and then untransfer it back in order to not have fees. So you can do little trickery like that within the U.S. banking system. I think that's how my current bank account is set up with, uh, with a bank I use. Uh, let's see, John Greed Lead. Uh, did you see the movie Bohemian Rhapsody? I've got to ask it because Queen does your flash questions theme. Yes, I have not seen it yet. We have it. Uh, we just need to watch it. I'm looking forward to it. I, uh, talking about that historical revisionism, apparently there was quite a bit of it in that movie. I was a little disappointed. I thought it was going to be more accurate, but I am still looking forward to seeing it because I heard it was a pretty amazing movie. Uh, and by the way, I love Queen. I think they are one of the best rock bands ever. So many hits, so many amazing songs. So, uh, love Queen. Tango Z, Chris, did you ever visit St. Hill in the in the UK? I did not. I've never been to the UK. I've been to Australia and I've been to Canada, but I haven't been to the UK yet. Uh, Tango Z, Pat Broker is hitting the next OT levels according to Miscarriage. Do you believe that, Chris? Nope, I do not. Uh, the story goes that um, Pat Broker had a filing cabinet full of L. Ron Hubbard's research, which was supposed to have attained, uh, contained the OT levels, the upper OT levels. Turns out that wasn't true. They actually got those file cabinets, not just one file cabinet, and um, tried to get through, tried to go through them, uh, and there was they couldn't make hide or you know hedge or tails out of what was there, and so the that's the that's the story as we know it. Um, obviously I wasn't there, but that's, that's what we heard. So, uh, no, I don't, uh, don't believe that. Oh, Chris Johnson, do you plan on covering the Heaven's Gate cult? I, I didn't really have any plans on that specifically. Um, it's been so well covered already. Um, but you know, it's uh, never say never. It's just something I haven't gotten around to yet. Let's see. Great questions this week. Um, oh, DV486407, I assume your son would automatically be a dual Australian U.S. citizen. Did you ever have any sort of paperwork or tax complications related to his citizenship? No, no, I never did. It's, it's never come up uh, on my, across my plate at all. Um, Nerman, Odkin, how did Hubbard define insanity? Um, Boy, how did he define insanity? I'd have to get my tech dictionary out. What, what comes to mind right away is how he defines psychosis, um, which was a continual, constant urge to do evil 
or do, you know, or dramatize an evil purpose or an evil intention. Um, that was his definition of psychosis, which is, you know, pretty much into insanity. Insanity was the inability to recognize differences, similarities, and identities, uh, which was also the definition of stupidity and irrationality. Like Hubbard liked to group all this stuff together. Um, so yeah, the, the inability to recognize, um, differences, similarities, and identities. I think that also had to do with illogic. That was in the, that was, that comes out of the data series too. Um, Hubbard had a lot to say, by the way, and a lot of different lectures about insanity. So you can find, I, I don't have it here right now, but the tech dictionary in Scientology gives a number of definitions for insanity, if I remember right. Uh, because Hubbard commented on it routinely through the years. Uh, John, Joel Greenlee, have you done any research on multi-tiered marketing? It feels like a business cult of sorts. Yes, um, multi-level marketing, uh, especially Amway, I can speak to specifically, is definitely cult-like, uh, definitely not above the boards. Amway is complete racket. Uh, and a lot of cult thinking going on in those kind of groups. So yes, I have done some research on that. I've talked to people who were involved with Amway um, in present time and how the business model works and how they sell the sellers on selling and this kind, you know, all this kind of stuff. So um, yeah, nasty stuff. And you know, this whole all the get rich quick stuff is generally just is, has as much validity as as homeopathy. It's just a bunch of woo woo nonsense. And really should be avoided. Uh, let's see. Susan Hepler. Hey, Susan. Hey. Uh, hi, Chris. Loving the live chat. Was hoping you could explain why LRH and the church pretend that his second wife practically didn't exist. What did she do and when did you learn about her? Okay. Um, Hubbard's second wife, uh, Polly. Um, oh, no, not Polly. Sarah. Yeah, Polly was his first wife. Okay, so Sarah was connected with um, uh, Jack Parsons with, with that whole time period, with the Aleister Crowley time period. And the church hates that time period because they can't disavow it because uh, Hubbard actually talked about how Aleister Crowley was a good friend of his. So the church would have to edit that out of those lectures to be able to have any plausible deniability that Hubbard never knew anything about Aleister Crowley or Jack Parsons. So they have to keep that there, but they've totally edited out everything having to do with Sarah Northrup, who he uh, absconded with from Jack and then married and then dumped uh, after they had a daughter and Hubbard went off and you know went crazy. So, um, so the question here is um, why they pretend his second wife didn't exist. Yeah, they pretend she didn't exist because of the connection with the occult. Uh, that's the first thing I think of, at least, right? Um, it was also a very short little time period that they were together. So it's, and also, of course, the other aspect of that is the uh, uh, bigamy. Is that the right word? When you're married to more than one person at one time, uh, that also happened, right? And they can't have any of that. Couldn't possibly ever admit to the fact that L. Ron Hubbard was married to two different women for a year's time. And both women did not know of the other's existence. I mean, that's what a cad that guy was. So uh, he did that. He really did that. 
so yeah, the church doesn't want to have anything to do with that. And that follows along with Hubbard's wishes, because when he was interviewed many, many years later, he said, I, there, I never had a second wife. <laughs> he just talked about his third wife. <laughs> okay. Um, anyway, I hope that answers that for you, Susan. Let's see here. How are we doing for time? Oh, we're coming up on time. Okay. Um, DV486407. The Wonderfully Terrible Road to Freedom album. Oh, my God. Yes. The church released in the 80s. There's a song called Why Worship Death. It's possibly the worst song on the album, but what the hell is it about? I actually don't remember. I'm sorry. I remember a lot of songs on that. That album. Oh, my God. That album. <laughs> okay. What The Road to Freedom was an album, a music album, that was put out by Scientology celebrities who recorded L. Ron Hubbard's written songs uh, for, you know, posterity or whatever to, to, to immortalize his words in music. The Road to Freedom was the first Scientology, well, no, it wasn't the first Scientology music album, but it was the, it was certainly the first one I was aware of in the 80s. And it, they had a concert where they sang all the songs at one of the events. And um, they, the reason I know, still remember this, is because they used to play it on a loop in reception over and over and over again. So I've heard the Road to Freedom album, uh, or the Road to Freedom song, probably a thousand times. Um, but they didn't play Why Worship Death very often. They played the ARC song. They played uh, the Road to Freedom. They played um, a bunch of different songs. Thank you for listening. This L. Ron Hubbard sang. <laughs> L. Ron Hubbard sings a song on this album called Thank You for Listening. And he's like, got this deep, thank you for listening. I write just for you. I, I can't remember the other words. It's pretty bad. <laughs> so yeah, that's um, that's the road to freedom. That's what I can say about that. I just I just don't remember the why worship death one. Karen uh, A, I am from Fresno. Okay, hey Fresno. Uh, there's not a Scientology org or church here. Did Scientology skip the center of California because it's so conservative, politically, religiously, and economically? No, not at all. Um, the reason Scientology doesn't go into places, uh, for the most part has to do with the fact that there just aren't Scientologists who go there. Um, I mean, I don't know how, you know, there's been a couple Scientologists who lived in Fresno, but nobody ever wanted to start a mission or a group there. And if nobody starts one up, then that, that's generally how orgs were formed. There are, uh, in the hierarchy of Scientology organizations, you have field groups, then you have missions, then you have orgs. And missions are started by somebody. They pay the church, they get the licensing and the, and the registration and the materials, they open up a building and they start delivering Scientology as a mission. We've talked about that. Um, orgs almost all came from converted missions. Very few orgs were just started as orgs right off. Um, some started that way, but, um, but most were converted from missions, so especially in California. Almost all the California orgs uh, short of, I think, Los Angeles, were originally missions. So that's that's kind of the sequence of how those things happen and why you're not seeing any, any Scientology in Fresno. Hell, there are whole states that don't have any Scientology in them. I mean, there's nothing in Montana, and that's where Hubbard was born. Uh, no, we're sorry, Nebraska. Well, Nebraska, too. 
uh, Nebraska, Montana, both Dakotas, Wyoming. There's nothing. There's no, um, there's, there's Albuquerque in New Mexico. There's a couple in Texas. Um, Louisiana has like a mission or a Narconon. I mean, there's just not a lot uh, of Scientology around in some of these places. Uh, Cynthia, have you ever read C.S. Lewis Chronicles of Narnia? Yes, when I was a kid, I did. Those were some of the fantasy books I read when I was a kid. I had no idea, none, totally went over my head that there was any Christian symbolism in those books. I had no, no concept when I was reading the books that it was Christian, Christian allegory. Uh, let's see here. Happy Festivus. What's this? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, we're we're going to do two more, and then we're going to get going, guys. These have, been, these have been some really great questions this week. I hope you guys have found this as, as entertaining as it has been for me to answer them. Watch Game of Thrones? Goddamn right I have. <laughs> we, I got to catch Melissa up, so we are not watching the new episodes yet. Um, but I am all the way caught up, and Melissa has not watched any of them, so we're gonna we're gonna do them all. All right. Um, and okay, my first channel asks: Do you think all cult leaders are narcissists? Is there another overarching quality they have? Yes, there are a lot of qualities cult leaders have. Um, I've been putting a lot of thought into this. I got a lot more thinking and, and research to do on it because this has been a real focus for a long time. But narcissism is absolutely a key component of a cult leader. You have to be self-absorbed to that degree in order to be the kind of person who can dominate and control others with such ease and, and without you know, it messing around with your moral compass. Um, so that's definitely a key trait. Um, and I think that there's a personality type. I started talking about that recently. Uh, that is prone to that kind of thinking and that kind of behavior. Uh, so narcissism would be one way to describe an aspect of that personality. There's other parts of that personality also that are not just the self-absorbed parts. For example, a purpose, a, a sense of purpose and mission that is overriding in their head, right, when they are uh, not outright con men. But even then, when they're outright con men, their sense of purpose is to con other people, you know, with some really strong, powerful uh, central belief or tenet or something that they can sell people on. So I think those are also part of the package. So I've been anyway, more to work on with that. But that's my that's my initial answer. Uh, OK, how we I didn't look through. I've just been looking at the questions here. Are we, we good? Yeah. Yeah. OK, good. Guys, thanks very much for coming around. We're going to wrap this thing up now. Let's go ahead and uh, window over here to our live streaming stream. This has been a lot of fun, folks. Thanks very much for joining me this week and coming around and asking these questions. Your support is awesome. Please do consider joining me on Patreon because that's what allows this kind of stuff to happen. I always love doing the live streams. Never know what's going to come up. But, uh, but anyway, thanks again, guys, and I'll see you guys next week. All right, let us end the stream.